Well, good morning. My name is Sam Margones. I am the local and global outreach pastor here at Rexdale Alliance Church. And I want to extend my welcome to all of you. I'm so glad you've come to worship this great God, those, that God who we sang about, who is mighty to save and who rose from the dead. You know, today we continue our series that we've entitled Reflections. And it's a series that uh, basically focuses on specific texts of scripture that God has used over and over again in the lives of the people who are speaking up here. And, uh, you know, when, when Pastor Wade actually introduced the series, I was sitting right there, and I had this distinct impression and move in my spirit to actually ask him, you know, I wonder if I could actually preach one of the messages. And if you know me, and my love-hate relationship toward preaching, you would know that that itself is actually a miracle. Uh, so I actually went to go and email him, and uh, as I was checking my inbox there, there was a message already inviting me to preach one of the messages. However, Pastor Chris was supposed to preach today, but he got sick with the flu, and so I had uh, a text uh, late Monday afternoon saying, could we switch, because I was supposed to be preaching in March. So this morning, I'll be preaching from Romans chapter 1, and more specifically, verses 16 and 17, very familiar passage of scripture And you all know that Romans is a book about God and his gospel. And specifically, verses 16 and 17 encapsulates the theme and thesis of the whole book. And that is this, that God has done and brought about salvation to people. Because Paul's main concern for his readers was that they know and understand that a sinner, and how a sinner can be received by a righteous God. Now, I picked this portion of scripture for three reasons, really. Uh, my first reason is that it would spur you on to love this book. That, it would, that you would want to uh, basically dig deep into and mine the truths of the book of Romans. Uh, I think it was last summer, I stopped, uh, took a pause from uh, my yearly Bible reading and began study on the book of Romans. And over these past few months, because I love this book, all, you know, since I came to know Christ, it's been my uh, most favorite book of the Bible. And so, over these past few months, I've been meditating on it, I've been reading and rereading passages of Scripture from Romans, and I've been uh, reading commentaries and books on it, I've been uh, you know, writing on the margins of my Bible, and meditating and, and asking the Lord to speak uh, to me through this book. And some of you might think, well, that's a terribly long time to actually study one book of the Bible. That's been eight months. But God has used it in my life powerfully. It's, it's as if I've been sleeping all this time and I've been awakened to a whole new world. Martin, Martin Luther said in the book of Romans, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, but by heart, by occupying himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. And you know, for a long time, Luther actually wrestled to understand verse 17 of chapter 1. And it transformed his life. 
and it brought about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And uh, even you know, our own Pastor Sender, who preached here last week, uh, his life was changed when he found uh, a book, a commentary of the book of Romans on top of a garbage heap in New Delhi. So this book and these verses have the potential of causing a huge amount of change in our lives. In fact, it's had a huge change in our church history here at Rexdale, in the larger church history, and in the world in general. So my prayer really is that it spurs you on to study this great book. And my prayer is that it would have a powerful effect on your life as God opens your eyes to the truth in them. Now, Secondly, uh, I want us to reflect on this book because uh, I want us to glory in the truth of the gospel. Ever since the coming of Christ, I've always loved sharing the gospel and I love teaching people how to share the gospel. You know, it's as if God has just kind of turned off, turned off that shame factor in my brain that I think everyone would want to hear the gospel. And, you know, for those of you who are evangelists out there, you know what I'm talking about. And it's not any credit that I could take on my own. You know, God has given each of his children gifts, gifts of the Spirit. And mine just happens to be uh, telling the gospel to people. And it's something that energizes me. Um, you know, I remember one of the best days of ministry has been that all day long, that's all I did was talk to people about Christ. Now, most of my Christian life and ministry, uh, I tried to actually reduce the gospel. It's, it's this, just this essence, that irreducible minimum uh, that's found in 1 Corinthians 15. But over time, I've actually come to realize that a gospel is not meant to be reduced. It's meant to be lived out and expanded in our whole lives. That our job really is to grow in the love and knowledge of Jesus and his gospel so that it pours out of our lives. And that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel, that we glory in the gospel. And once you know the gospel and you truly appreciate it, you'll want to share it. Because I can teach you the mechanics of how to sail a boat. But until I help you understand the joy of uh, the sea and the joy of water splashing over your face as you skim over the waves, will you not take the boat out to sail it? And lastly, you know, it is my desire and prayer that people would truly understand the gospel, even maybe for the first time. You know, again, over the years, I've come to realize that there are people in churches, young and old, people who have been in church for a short time, a long time, and who have been uh, Christ followers, who have a shallow or incomplete view of the gospel. If you ask them, you know, are you sure that you would go to heaven after you die? They'd say, you know, I'm not really sure. Well, and I'd ask them, well, how sure are you? Well, maybe about 75%. And I'd ask them, well, what happened to the other 25%? Now, they would have that assurance. And for those who say they do have assurance, when they ask what is the basis for you being sure, they're not that certain either. Well, I don't know. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. So that's my hope for us, is that you gain confidence knowing that God is in your life. And, you know, for, in many ways, it's not the fault of the people who are there because sometimes the church has failed to fully 
teach on what the gospel is all about. So if this message spurs you on to study and mind the truths of Romans, if it gives you a deeper appreciation of the gospel so that it actually pours out of your life, and if you fully and truly understand the gospel, maybe for the first time, then God would have graciously answered Paul's desire in this book and in this chapter. So let's dive into our text. Romans 1, 16 to 17. And let's stand. Let's stand and read these verses together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be seated. Before we look into the detail of these two verses, I just want us to look at the, the beautiful flow of Paul's reasoning and logic uh, in these two verses. First, he begins with verse 16. And it starts with the word for. So that means it connects it to verse 15. For those of you who are grammar geeks, you know that. So, the, verse 16, Paul says that, I, uh, he, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so the question then, I so Paul, why are you so eager to preach the gospel? Well, he answers and says, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then the question, well, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? And he answers it because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then the question lies then, well, how is it the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? And he answers the question. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And then the question is, Paul, is this a new idea? Is this something that you just uh, taught about? And then is it uh, coming from Old Testament, New Testament? He says, no. He cites it. It's not a new idea. In fact, he he cites Habakkuk 2.4. And he says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So let's just unpack. Let's unpack these two verses slowly. And let's together glory in the gospel. So he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's curious. So you have to wonder, why does Paul say it this way? Why does he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, he uses a, a kind of a figure of speech. Uh, it's called litotes. And really, it's, it's like a negative understatement. Let me give you an example. Uh, I guess you could, someone could say, you know, Hussein Bolt is not a bad sprinter. Now, he, we actually mean Hussein Bolt is an amazing sprinter. In fact, he holds the world's record So, really, in this, Paul is saying, I glory in the gospel. I am so proud of the gospel. It's amazing. But why does he say it this way? Well, just think with me for a moment. Paul is speaking to first century Rome. And Paul is just this little-known Jewish man who's coming to one of the largest and most sophisticated cities of the world of that day. And he was preaching about uh, a Gentile carpenter turned prophet who was executed by the Roman government in the most humiliating of ways, the Roman cross. And so, if you're going to reach the people of Rome, 
you had better uh, have a message that addresses the most educated and the most powerful. Uh, that you would have solutions to the political, social, and economic problems of that empire. And don't forget that Rome spanned from Portugal, the western part of Europe, all the way to the Middle East and Asia and North Africa. But Paul's main message actually didn't directly talk about those issues of the empire directly. His message focused on the main need of man, of human beings. And so whether they were the uh, most religious of Jews or the most powerful Gentile, and again, Gentile just means people who are not Jews, which is everybody else, that the main need of man is to be reconciled to the holy God. The main need of man is to be reconciled to the holy God. And so he actually uses this word, this Greek word, eugelion, which literally means good news. And he uses it because it's the word that they use to announce the birth of an emperor or when he's coming into power, when that emperor actually wins the battle to underscore the fact that this message is powerful and it is bold. Now, Paul was also not ashamed of this gospel because he knew, he knew that it was trustworthy. He knew that this was actually from God and it didn't originate from man. That's why he actually starts his letter in Rome, in Romans 1. And starting with uh, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand in, in, uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed with power appointed to the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. You know, don't forget that Paul was trained as a Pharisee, and he was an expert of the Old Testament. And so he was reminding his hearers that this is not plan B of God. God wasn't in heaven, and kind of like, I'm surprised, you know, my creation, they sinned, and now what am I going to do? He was actually underscoring the fact that from the beginning of time, God already knew that Adam and Eve would sin. That there would be people who would rebel against him. And that he would provide a way through his son Jesus Christ that he would come in the flesh. That he would redeem the world through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And you know, he talks about the prophets. And you know, there are over 350 prophecies about Christ. And Jesus fulfilled them all. And so he's saying, this is trustworthy. You know, the probability of one person fulfilling all these prophecies in one lifetime is almost next to zero. And then he appeals that this person is historical. He was the son of David. And again, appealing to, to prophecy. But he was a real human being. He was a person in history. And then he appeals to the resurrection that his power and, you know, that he is the son of God because he rose from the dead. So everything else that he said was true. And this made Paul bold in sharing the gospel. So God had put this label on the gospel, made by God. And so when you're out there and trying to share your faith, you don't have to doubt. You don't ever have to doubt that this is just some made-up religion. 
That this is something that is made by God, communicated by God. And that will give you boldness. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because he says, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, for us to proclaim the gospel unashamedly, we actually have to believe it. And for us to believe it, we have to understand it. And we have to understand this one thing, that the gospel is all about salvation. It's because it's a word that we don't actually use anymore. You know, it's like, ooh, saved. Uh, just, um, it's not something that people actually understand or even say anymore. But salvation is the main need of every person. But the question really is also, what are we being saved from? Are we being saved from sin? Are we being saved from Satan? Are we being saved from the world? Well, Paul actually anticipates that that question was going to come up. And so in the preceding verses, verses 118, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he repeatedly says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the main thrust of what he's trying to say in that big chunk of Scripture. In Romans 3, 10 to 18, Paul actually strings together a whole bunch of Old Testament uh, verses. It's kind of a rabbinical style of teaching, what they call katena. And he wants to hammer home this point that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Uh, Verse 10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then skipping down to verse 17, And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then, in verse 18, he says, Therefore, therefore we are all under the wrath of God. We're all under the wrath of God. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. So it's the truth. You know, I love what Pastor Sunder's illustration is. Like, it's like this beach ball that in the ocean, you know, you're trying to push it down, and it usually wants to keep popping back up. That's what the truth does. And, and the truth is, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Verse uh, in Romans 5, 9, again, it underscores it again. And since we have now been justified by his blood, Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So what are we being saved from? Is it from the devil, from our sin? We are being saved from the very wrath of God. Because we have a holy God and sinful people. It's like that oil and water. You know, if you mix oil and water together, you shake it, they'll always separate because they're two different natures. That is a good illustration of the wrath of God. And then Paul anticipates also the coming question that would come when people talk about the wrath of God. It's like, and the question is, is God just? Like, why do we have this angry God all of a sudden? Why would he even talk about that, Paul? And so he clarifies it. And he says, again, uh, stemming from verse 18, talking about the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Because then he says here in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen for what has been made. So that what? People are without excuse. Did you know that? The people are without excuse. Chapter 1 clearly tells us that God has revealed himself to all of humankind through creation. I mean, look at Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. In fact, it says, Creation is speaking to all of mankind. There is a God and you need to worship him and glorify him. And then on top of that, God has revealed himself and specifically to the Gentiles because Israel, Israel had the law. To the Gentiles, he says, he reveals himself through his conscience, to their consciences as well. Romans uh, chapter 2, 14 to 15 says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not know the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at times even defending them. So God has revealed himself to people through their conscience, speaking to them that there is a God, that he needs to be glorified. And then furthermore, God has revealed himself through Israel. He's revealed himself to the nations through Israel so that people are, not, uh, are without excuse. Again, Romans three nineteen to 20 says this, And now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And that's Israel. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Can you believe that? That we are silenced before God. And all our righteous indignation. God, how can you be so unrighteous? He says that every mouth is silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Because Israel thought that if they obeyed the law, they could get to God. But the law's purpose was really like a mirror to show that they had sin. That they couldn't actually get to God. Because, I mean, look at the first commandment of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who can fulfill that? Right from law one, it showed them they couldn't do it. And so, again, Paul tells them that they are held accountable to God. So Romans teaches us that people have, again, uh, were made to worship God and to glorify Him. But even with all the revelation that God had given in creation, people have rebelled against Him. And instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship created beings. And people either suppress the truth or they perverted the truth. And so their consciences became seared. And even Israel, God's chosen people, when given the law and the prophets, tried to achieve their own righteousness through fulfilling the law, which they could not do. And that's why God's wrath is on us. And he is vindicated in that anger. So know this. Know this, at least. When you are talking to someone about the gospel, about this good news of Jesus, you're not starting from scratch. You're not. Because God has revealed himself to them through nature, in their conscience, and through Israel, and now through Jesus in the Bible. In fact, in verse 32 of chapter 1, it says that 
they already knew the righteous decrees of God. So if you think that we need to sell the gospel uh, by kind of you know, glossing over some of these negative aspects of it and just kind of talking about the positive ones, then we are in danger of sinning by being ashamed of the gospel. Because we do not need God's salvation in Christ if, and Christ didn't have to die on the cross if we're all basically good people and just kind of need a little encouragement you know, to, uh, to be right with God. We all need a Savior who was crucified on the cross for our sins because we all are all by nature ungodly rebels who are under God's righteous wrath. And this really is offensive to the natural person. It really is. It's offensive. And so they don't want to look at it. uh, But if we hold back on that point, we have missed the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is only good news to the person who realizes that he needs to be saved or he will eternally perish. Because it's not, if it's not, then it's just news. And he goes on, and Paul answers the question, why was he not ashamed? Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? For it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So the gospel doesn't just tell us about the power of God. It is the power of God for salvation. What do you mean? Well, this means that salvation is not something that sinners can attain in their own effort and strength. Because if that were true, then again, Christ didn't have to die. And salvation is not just this joint project that where we do uh, our part and God, God does his part. Now, you may be thinking, well, what happened to faith? Aren't we, uh, don't we need to believe? Well, yes, and we'll see that as a huge part of of salvation, the salvation is to be received and sustained by faith alone from start to finish. But saving faith, which includes repentance, is not something that sinners can produce on their own. Really, it's the gift of God, so no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So no one can boast. So salvation requires the very power of God uh, to impart life to dead sinners, something that is impossible for men to bring about. You know, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he went away sad, Jesus commented to the disciples in Matthew 19, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished. And they replied, Then who can be saved? Jesus said, with people this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Because God has been the one who had done it. So I want you to think about your own salvation for a moment. And kind of supernatural circumstances that were around that in bringing you to a right relationship with God. You know, over the years I've heard some pretty amazing testimonies of how people have come to Christ. You know, heard of uh, Muslim people having dreams and visions about God and, you know, coming to know Christ. I've heard of uh, rebels who had 
come upon some missionaries stolen uh, the Jesus film that they would be showing and then after watching the film had come to know Christ and then would then show it to other rebels and go to other towns and villages and it's been the power of God but really that's not just the power that God is talking about the power really is displayed in making sinners righteous before a holy God and then he moves on to say, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Paul makes this distinction. Notice that he doesn't just say to the Jews, plural, and to the Gentiles, plural. They're both singular. And really, he's saying that salvation is an individual and personal matter. Being a member of the Jewish race, even though they're you know, God's chosen people, does not bring you to a right relationship with God going to church, or belonging in a Christian family, going to youth group, or family ministries, or being here for many, many years, does not make you a Christian. does not get you saved. You must personally, individually, believe in Christ. Now, Paul was just saying, you know, first to the Jew, because again, the gospel came first in history to the Jews. It went to Abraham, and through his descendants, Isaac, and Jacob, and God had revealed the salvation through them. It was through the Jews that the Savior came. And that's why Jesus said himself, salvation is from the Jews. But he says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, really, to hammer home this point that the gospel is universal. It's universal. It's for everyone. It is for the rich and the poor, the, the young and the old, the famous, the forgotten. And there is no one who is outside the grace of God. You have... You know, no one and is too far gone for the grace of God. It is for everyone. But you must turn from your sins. That's repentance. Acknowledging that you're sinful and turning from it. And then you cry out to God to be merciful to you, a sinner, and that God will save you. Because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then, in verse 17, Paul explains why the gospel is the power of God for salvation. He says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's showing it. He's revealing it. It's interesting. You know, you have to think about this. It's interesting that Paul doesn't start off with the love of God. Because you would think that he would say, For the love of God is revealed. But no, he starts off with the righteousness of God. And it's definitely true that God displays the love of God for sinners, in Romans 5.8. But the love of God is really not the stumbling block for the Jews or foolishness to the Gentiles. In fact, we'd rather all love to think that God is a loving God. But if we believe that God is a loving God but not righteous, then he's just a good buddy in the sky. And that he can just kind of wink at sin and it's okay. If God is loving and not righteous again, it's easy for us to skim over the need for righteousness. But the righteousness of God is a problem for us. It's a problem for sinners. We have sinned against this righteous God. And if God is righteous and we are not, then we do need a Savior. But what does Paul mean, you know, that, that, that the righteousness of God is revealed? Really, there's different views about that specific phrase. 
But the context clearly points to this, that the righteousness of God is revealed in that the righteousness, that it's the righteousness that comes from God. And really we have to see it in this way, that God gives righteousness to sinners. He gives them a right standing. Because in the Old Testament, again, and Paul uses all kinds of Old Testament language, and he, he looks to that, and it's not so much, righteousness is not so much a moral quality, but a legal standing, a legal status. And he says he makes us righteous. But secondly, it shows us God's personal righteousness is vindicated in the very act of declaring sinners righteous. Because if you think about it, you know, well, you've probably seen, you know, whether it be from Judge Judy or some of these courtroom cases, and all of us get angry. We get really angry when we see injustice done. Right? You know, when you see a drunk driver who's killed the whole family, what? We get incensed when we see a murderer set free or get a few years sentence. We all scream at injustice, and it is unjust. If you think about it, if God lets sinners free, but he says this, no, I am vindicated, my righteousness is vindicated when I declare sinful men and women righteous. Because we know this in chapter 3, in Paul, you know, uh, Romans 1.17, righteousness from God is revealed, is very reflective of chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, which reads this. And picture this, you know, picture uh, Paul, I mean, he's just getting all excited, worked up, because he's just building his case from 118 all the way to 320. He's saying that people are sinful, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And God has revealed himself through him through creation and through their conscience and then through Israel. You know, and then again, they're, they deserve God's wrath. But, and, and they're sinners before a righteous God. And so he says this, but now, but now, you know, I, I call it one of the great, great, greatest buts in the Bible. That doesn't sound right, actually. Um, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. He's, I mean, Paul is so excited, but now, I mean, it's all been bad news. It's all been downhill. It's like, this is really bad news, but then he says, but now. Apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So God knew about this. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He is atoning for sin through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this. And again, those two points of righteousness. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Okay? He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So it's clear that Paul is saying that God's righteousness is revealed through granting a right standing to sinners because of his son has met the righteous requirements of the law perfectly and also that God had, again, uh, proved himself righteous. Well, how is, God righteous, how is God's righteousness applied to sinners? 
answers that is a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. This is it's written, the righteous will live by faith. If you look at it, the word believing and faith occurs four times in these two verses. Four times. And so, Paul is underscoring the point salvation is through faith alone. It's not a faith that is alone, because we know that good works is the testimony that we really have come to faith in Christ, but it's not faith plus good works. Because if it is by good works, then, again, we wouldn't know if we've done enough good works to qualify for heaven. But if God actually declares you just, if he takes guilty sinners to be righteous and justified, the instant they believe, that is really good news. But we need to be clear uh, what true saving faith is. Because true saving faith is not just believing that Jesus is the Savior, because the Bible says even the demons believe that, and they're not saved, Right? So, the saving faith really has three elements to it. The first element is that we need to understand with our minds, fully understand what the content of the gospel is. We need to understand that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he came to save the world. He was the Messiah, spoken of by the prophets, and that he came to die on the cross. What that means to be the penalty for our sin, and then he rose to life to authenticate that he is the one who he claimed to be. The second element is this, that we have this heart response to the truth. So first the head and now the heart, where we actually believe, we agree that this is true, and our agreement causes us to be sorrowful over our sin, and that we want to actually turn away from it. And that's Repentance. The third element is actually an act of the will. It's committing to Christ. It's trusting Him. His death on the cross is the only hope for our salvation. So we follow Him as Lord. Again, saving faith is not a work that we do, but simply receiving all that God offers to us in Christ. It is really the hand that receives the free gift. That's what faith is. The hand that receives the free gift. And we are justified. We are made right with God the instant we believe. But we also go on believing the gospel because God reveals himself to us in that way. If you notice, um, the, again, the phrase from first to last. right? We receive the gospel by faith and it's from first to last. And we know that in the word believe in verse 16 is actually in the present participle, meaning that faith is not just a single event, but it's a lifelong event. And that God is saving us all through our life. First, he saved us from the power of sin. Before, we were in bondage and enslaved to the sin, and then he sets us free from the power of sin. And then he saves us from the practice of sin. You know, that's what sanctification is. He's making us more and more like Jesus Christ. And then... When he takes us home to be with him, he takes us out of, he saves us from the presence of sin. Again, saves us from power of sin, the practice of sin, and then the presence of sin. You know, the world has really believed two of the biggest lies of the enemy. One is that we are all good people. And then secondly, that God is so loving that he allows everyone to go to heaven I tell you, if you're not convinced that you're a sinner, you have no need for God. Because scripture is clear. It's like 
your good works are like spraying perfume on a corpse. God didn't just resuscitate us. In fact, he took our dead bodies from the bottom of the sea. He took us out, put us on the shore, and he breathed his life into us. That's what happened. And so, as we close, and I invite the worship team to come, it's my prayer that you begin to love and fully understand the gospel. This is the gospel. It's been offered to you and to me, and you have come and received that by faith. And so we rejoice in that. My prayer is that you will now dig deep into the truth of that. So, again, it's not reduced to this irreducible minimum. No four points and you share it, but it's your very life shares it. That you glory in the gospel, that you actually love Jesus and all that He's done for you. And then you share it. It's not like an event, it's not like something that we do, okay, I need to share my faith. But you can't help it because you love this Jesus. And I recognize again that there are people, God has given gifts. But God has given you gifts and it, to be for this one thing to make disciples of all nations. So my prayer too is that you use those gifts for this gospel, that we all contend as one man for the gospel. And this morning we come around the Lord's table and you know in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul goes on to say, you know, and he has raised us up with Christ to see us with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages we might, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And this really, this table, this communion table, is just that. God, through the coming ages, is expressing to us the riches of his grace. You know, when we partake of the bread and the cup, we preach the gospel all over again to ourselves and to those who will be coming maybe for the first time understanding the gospel. And so if you're here today and maybe you don't have assurance of salvation, I pray that today you would be sure because by faith you have received that. It would be the hand that received the free gift of God is offered to you freely, rich or poor, you know, famous or not, young and old, it's there for you. The only criteria is faith. It's simple. Even a little child can do it. And he welcomes you. And yesterday, we just rejoiced that there was one person who had been coming for a few months here, invited by a friend, and you know, she'd been picking her up to go to church. And at the end of the service, she gave her life to Christ. And we rejoiced because, you know, the gospel is the power of God. So I just want to invite those who are serving, helping serve communion. And again, we come around the Lord's table and we don't want to do that in an unworthy manner. So I'm just going to give us some time to reflect on our lives. If there's any sin that needs to be confessed, relationship that needs to be restored, again, the Bible says this is the time. To confess that, says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just some, but all. trust that the Lord will speak to you you rejoice in the gospel and that you would mind the truth of the of Romans
for my bad diction and if you could rise for that. I want to bless you with an eagerness to preach the gospel, as Paul says in verse 15. I want to bless you with a boldness, this unashamed boldness that this is good news and that you will also go with the power of God, name the Father, Son, and Spirit. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.